Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, everyone. This is Andrea Giudice, and welcome to the second session of the 2021 GDUI convention. That music for the disclaimer is really groovy. It's pretty cool. It makes it exciting to have a disclaimer. I am glad that everyone is back. I'm just going to give a couple of quick reminders, and then I'm going to turn this over to our speaker today. I want to remind everyone that we have door prizes, and if you have registered for GDUI as part of your registration process for the ACB convention, then your name will be on my list of people who are being picked from to get the door prizes. We have a drawing this year, as in past years, we have the plush guides in harness. There are two of them. Resume is a black lab who is sitting in a sitting position and pause P-A-W-Z is a golden retriever and they both are wearing harnesses. The tickets can be purchased online at gdui.org or you can call and order your tickets. The tickets are three tickets for $5 or seven tickets for $10 And you need to get yourself and all of your family and friends and all the strangers on the bus to buy tickets because my guide dog, Mr. A, has issued a challenge for us to exceed our sales from last year. And our last year sales for the tickets were $1,735. And right now we're at $1,400. So this is the challenge that my guide has issued. The number to call is 866-799-8436. And go to gdui.org to purchase those tickets. I don't want to give many announcements now because we've got a really exciting presenter with us. Christy Bain is here and she wears many, many hats. She must be about seven feet tall with all the hats she wears. The one she's wearing today is as author. She has a wonderful book called Forward Together. So I'm going to turn this over to you, Christy. I encourage you to talk however you want. We do have the ability for people to raise their hands. So if you want people to ask questions, however you want them to happen, whether it's just as you're talking or probably better at the end, if that works better for you. So go for it. Thank you very much, Andrea. Thank you for inviting me here to talk. And um, I see a lot of names of people I know in the attendees list. So that's really great. Um, I can talk for as long as we have available about guide dogs and training because that's my favorite subject in the world and it always has been. But I understand I'm here primarily to talk about my books, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm not here to sell my book and try to get everyone to buy it. It's more like I'm here to talk about why I wrote the book and it's also available on BARD as far as I know and you can read it there. So anyway, we can talk about that later. I just want to talk a little bit first about who I am. For those of you who don't know me, I am a trainer, but I am also currently working in the Puppy Raising Services Department at Southeastern Guide Dogs, and I've been there for three and a half years. I've also worked in the past at Leader Dogs and Seeing Eye, and I started my apprenticeship at Guiding Eyes, and I was a puppy raiser for Guide Dogs for the Blind. And I live with a field rep for Guide Dogs for the Blind, Will Henry. So pretty much my whole life is Guide Dogs, and it has been for a very long time. The reason that I wrote the book was because there were not any books available that were current that really explained what happened before a dog became a guide dog. So the puppy raising process and the formal training process. And I wrote the book for two groups of people primarily. One was puppy raisers because they always wanted to know what happened to their dogs after they entered formal training. And for a long time, that was kind of like a secret. Like we didn't want them to know too much because we didn't want people to think they could start training their dogs for guide dog tasks when they were puppies. I guess that was part of the thinking behind it. But it, what it ended up being was to a puppy raiser, like you were sending your dog kind of into this black hole and you knew they were well taken care of, but you didn't know anything about what was going on with their life. And then the other group of people I wrote it for was guide dog handlers, because a lot of guide dog handlers are very curious, of course, about how the dogs actually learn to do what they do. 
There wasn't a lot of detailed information about that. I know we explained some things as class instructors. So you, you did understand and we're told some things about the training process, but I really wrote this book for the guide dog geeks among us, um, whether we're puppy raisers or handlers. That's not a derogatory term to me. That's a very complimentary term. Um, guide dog geeks to me are people that just want to know everything they can about guide dogs and training. So if I say that you're one of those, that's definitely a compliment when it's coming from me. If you have questions, I know Andrea said maybe hold them till the end, but it's actually easier for me if you ask them as I'm talking about the subjects, just because I've kind of moved from one subject to another. And if you're wondering something about a particular thing I'm talking about, then probably somebody else is too. So it's easier for me if you raise your hand and I'll, I'll try to keep looking at the list and see who's got their hand raised. So if I don't see your hand, then just unmute yourself and say your name and just interrupt me and it's fine. I want to start with the process of writing the book. I knew for a long time that I was going to write a book about guide dog training. I mean, a very long time. I've had some chapters of it written probably as far back as like 2015. It was 2017 when I finally committed to writing it. It was a New Year's resolution, and I just decided I'm going to write 2,000 words a day until I'm done. At that time, I was working at Leader Dogs, and... I, I did literally write 2,000 words a day, starting on January 1st and finishing on about April 17th. Um, it was a lot of words, and I thought it was probably too many words. And anybody who has the actual physical book might agree with me that it's too many words. I just thought, well, I'll put it all on paper, and the editor can get rid of what is not necessary. And I just figured the editor would get rid of a lot of stuff because I did not think that all those words were necessary it's just easier for me to generate a large amount of words and then throw away what doesn't need to be there. Once I wrote the book, I had this giant uh, manuscript. I think it was like 400,000 words or something. Then I didn't know what to do with it. Or rather, I did know what to do with it, but it was kind of difficult to do because I knew that I needed a professional editor. I did write to one publisher, was uh, Dogwise. That's a company that produces a lot of training books and asked them if they were interested in publishing it. And they responded with a really nice letter, but basically said, no thanks, because they didn't think the audience was big enough. And I kind of agreed with them because I saw this as being a book that would be appealing to a kind of small group of people, like a niche. The people that were interested, I thought would be very interested, but, that but I didn't think it would be a very big number. So I totally understood where they were coming from. But they did give me the names of some freelance editors that they knew that worked on a lot of dog training books. So that was good because it allowed me to find somebody who is familiar with dog training and the way that dog training books are usually formatted. Because a lot of things I didn't really have a clue about, like, you know, do you capitalize obedience commands? Do you put them in quotes? What are the conventions followed in dog training books? And even though I thought I was a good enough writer, I am not good enough to um, produce a book that people are going to pay money for without having a professional kind of clean it up a little. So the reason that it didn't get published until 2020, even though I finished it in 2017, is because getting a freelance editor is very expensive, especially for a book of this size. And at the time, I just didn't have the extra money because I was doing a lot. I had a lot of expensive hobbies at the time. Like I was trying to do a marathon in all 50 states and I was doing triathlon and um, all those things took all my extra money. So that's actually the reason why I didn't put it out until 2020. What happened in 2020 is obviously COVID. So then when COVID happened, then we were sitting at home. We had a lot of time. We were a combination of stressed and bored. And it just seemed like a good time to take the final step and actually get the book done. So I contacted the editor a long time ago, but it wasn't until then that I actually um, committed to having her edit the book. And by then I'd finished my 50 States marathon. I didn't have expensive hobbies happening anymore. So I had enough money for the editor. And that is the reason why it took so long. She did like two passes through and she sent me back a round of first editing suggestions. And I did 
most of those. And thank goodness I paid for it. By the way, if you are ever going to publish a book, do get the editor because some of the things she made, she asked me to take out were I, I cringe at what would have happened if I left them in. And I probably would have left them in if she didn't tell me to take them out. So um, the editor is definitely, definitely worth it. And also, I just felt like if people are paying for this, they deserve something that's really clean and not just a rough draft. She did one round of edit suggestions, and I, I made them, send it back. She did one more round, and then I was kind of decided that I was okay with it the way it was, and she agreed. So then I had to figure out the cover and... Um, I had no clue how to do that. Although that is a thing that you can do if you do enough research and you're sort of tech savvy. I am not, I can barely manage zoom. So I knew I wasn't going to do that. Uh, so I found a private or freelance cover designer. I took the picture on the front cover. So that was me. That is a dog in training at Southeastern that was living with me at during COVID. And the person holding the harness is actually Will. Um, it's his leg in the picture, not mine. That's because I'm a better photographer than he is. So I took the picture, but the, I had the cover professionally designed. It's a black lab and harness looking at the camera. Um, I'm proud of the picture, but I picked the cover design from the templates that the person suggested. Then I had to figure out how to get it on Amazon. And then there was a question of, did I want to make it an audible book? And I, I did, but the process of finding a reader and getting a contract and all that was kind of intimidating. So I put it on my list of things to do to figure out how to read my own book and put it on audible. And that's doable. I just never done it. So that's the reason why it's, there's not an audio version available. Um, although it is on Bard and I, I know nothing about the process of how it got there, by the way, I'm totally fine with it being there. I'm happy that somehow it got there. But I, I really have no idea how it got there. I'm happy that it's available, though. So if anybody later wants to send me an email, if they know how that actually happened, then um, I would love to hear it. But it's not really necessary. I'm just glad it's available. That was kind of the process of writing the book. And then once I had it available, then I didn't know what to do. I didn't I wasn't sure how to put it on Amazon without making it sound like I was trying to get people to spend money on it, which I did not want to do. But at the same time, I mean, I can't give it away because it costs money to print and it costs money to edit. So finally, Will just put it on Facebook and said, Christy wrote this book, go buy it. And I don't know what would have happened if he hadn't put it up. I don't know if it ever would have gone out, but he finally did. And then a lot of people did. And then it was very exciting because it had been a dream of mine for a long time to write a book and publish it. And when it finally did get published, even though it was self-published, that really was um, as satisfying as you think it would be. So if anybody's sitting there thinking, oh, I should probably write a book, you should. You should totally write the book. It's doable by anybody it's, as long as you um, you know, can hire the people that you need to clean it up and make it presentable. So it was extremely satisfying to hold it in my hand, even though I was still couldn't believe how big it is. I really thought she would take more words out, but she didn't. So I always tell people, if, if you don't like the book, you can use it as a doorstop. If it doesn't work out as a book for you, then it has other functions or you know, hit somebody on the head with it. Or There's a lot of things you can do with it besides read it. So I'm going to go on to the subject matter of the book. Even though I only wrote it four years ago, there's still a lot of stuff when I look in there now, I think, well, that's not, that's not how I do that now, or that's not how I feel about this subject or that subject. So sometimes I feel like it needs to be updated, and other times I feel like, eh, no, I'm probably going to wait a little bit longer before I update it, because also I'm not currently training guide dogs at all. It's been about three years since I trained a guide dog. For a lot of people, the further they get from the time when they actually train guide dogs, the better guide dog trainer they become in their own head. That's definitely true for me. I know in my head, my dogs used to be awesome and I was a great trainer. And uh, I know that that's probably not true, but in my head it is. So I, at some point, I hope to go back and train actual guide dogs again, um, even though I, I really do love puppy raising. and I love puppy raisers. I would love to do both of them, but... It's kind of difficult to do because they're both full-time jobs. But I do feel like I was kind of in a, a good position to write a book like this. And the reason is because I started guide dog training 
when we didn't use any food at all. In fact, the thought of using food was an absolute no um, because of all the reasons that people had. Um, You would make the dog scavenge. If the dog wasn't hungry, it wouldn't work. Dogs should work because they love you, not because of food. Even with a dog that was afraid of things, we didn't really use food when I started. I don't remember what we did do if a dog was afraid of things. I think we just tried to get them used to it by using praise and encouragement and all that, but we would never use food, uh, not even to like get them in a crate if they didn't want to go or anything like that. And also we didn't use head collars, like gentle leaders. Those were never used or halties, never, ever. Um, because when I started, all the dogs had slip collars or choke chains, the, the politically incorrect term, but that was what they all had. Even the really soft and sweet dogs, that was the collar they, they used on them. I had probably, I mean, my first seven or eight years of guide dog training were, they were all traditional training. And I learned traditional training very well. And when I say traditional training, I mean training that was done with compulsion. Um, so the dogs didn't want to pull. We made it pull. We, we pulled on the collar until they realized that they had to go forward because it was very uncomfortable not to go forward when asked. Uh, they had to stop at a curb because if they didn't, then they got a snap on the leash. And so they did. They stopped at curbs because they didn't want the leash correction. If they wanted to chase an animal or another dog, they were going to get a leash correction too. So we hoped that they would make the better decision and not just not go after the animal. The problem with that is that over time, I'm sure that you guys will agree with me, the public has gotten more and more feeling like they have the right to intervene in guide dog handling and dog handling in general. It's not just guide dogs. It's any dog handling. So the public is very quick to question what a handler is doing with a dog. And they are also very quick to call the school if they don't feel like a dog is being treated properly. And the volume of complaints that the schools get or used to get about the way the dogs were being handled was just going up all the time. And it wasn't because people were abusing their dogs. It was because they were using techniques that the public is starting to see as cruel. Because as all this was happening, the the rise of clicker training in the pet dog world was happening and positive reinforcement training with food. And so pet dog owners, when they take classes in dog training, like at PetSmart or from private dog trainers, a lot of them were being told that you don't ever have to use corrections. You only have to use food. And so that belief kind of seeped out into the public. And so when they saw guide dog handlers using corrections, they thought that that was wrong. And a lot of them felt like they have the right to interrupt the handler and tell them so, uh, or they have the right to call the school and complain that the dog is being abused. So that was one big reason for the shift in training. The other big reason, of course, is that about the same time period, Guide Dogs for the Blind had started using positive reinforcement in their training program. And they had shared their knowledge with the other schools. So we saw that it did work. Um, But I was in the group of trainers that learned one way and got really good at it. And then the training world kind of changed and I had to learn a whole nother way and get good at that as well. So that was a lot of what I wrote about in the book was the change from one method of training to the other, kind of the pros and cons of each one. I personally, you know, I'm I'm pretty good at positive reinforcement training now. I wouldn't say I'm amazing at it, but I'm pretty good at it for what we need need to do with guide dog training and puppy raising. I have some opinions about it, which I was honest about in the book, and they haven't really changed all that much. But I still feel like it takes longer in some cases to correct undesirable behaviors when using only positive reinforcement in some cases, not in all cases, because... A lot of dogs and a lot of handlers are really good with positive reinforcement. And I like to think that our dogs get better all the time and our training programs get better all the time. So I'm definitely not saying it doesn't work. I'm just saying in some cases it can be slower work than a standard leash correction used to be. But the benefit of it is that you don't get people interfering with your work and calling and complaining to the schools. I understand both training methods very well, but I've pretty much in puppy raising at Southeastern, we pretty much only use positive reinforcement. I've, I've never taught a puppy raiser how to give a leash correction because we just don't do those with the puppies in training. And really we don't need to with the puppies in training. 
you know, when they're young and little and learning, they're very receptive to whatever method we're using to handle them. So I've got one right now, by the way. I have a little four-month-old puppy that I'm starting, a yellow lab puppy. He's sitting here looking up at me with the sweetest face as I'm petting his head. He's like, yes, I like positive reinforcement because it's more food for me. Anyway, so that was one thing I wanted to write about in the book was the change from one method to the other and uh, the challenges and opportunities that came along with it. Then the other reason I wrote it, like, like I said, was just because I wanted to educate. I wanted to give people an insight into the training that happened. I had a blog for a long time, and I, I don't really know why I stopped writing it. I've, I guess because I'm busy or because in my current position, I'm kind of afraid that if I write anything, I don't want it to make to look like what I'm saying about puppy raising is what people should listen to instead of what their organization says about puppy raising. Um, And I'm not actively training guide dogs right now, so I don't really have anything to say about guide dog training at the moment. And that's kind of why I stopped my blog. But I would like to start it up again at some point. Um, I'm just not sure when. But the level of interest that people had in my blog, which talked about behind-the-scenes training of both puppies and guide dogs, because I'm also a long, long long-time puppy raiser. That's how I started in 1987. I was 11 years old. My first puppy was from Guide Dogs for the Blinds. Actually, my first seven puppies were from Guide Dogs for the Blind. That blog was so well-received that that was why I thought that there would be interest in a book on the subject. And like I said, because there really isn't a book that was written anytime recently by a trainer. There's a lot of people that were better qualified than me to write this book, but none of them did. That's always what I say. There's definitely a lot of people that are better dog trainers than me. I think of myself as pretty much an average dog trainer for my years of experience. I like to think that I'm a pretty thoughtful dog trainer, so I I do things deliberately, and I always have a reason for what I'm doing, and I'm always looking at, is it working or not? I definitely don't have any natural dog training ability that's better than other people's. Um, In fact, kind of the opposite. I really felt bad for the people training me when I was an apprentice, especially Pete Jackson at The Seeing Eye. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you know him. He would explain something to me, and I would sit there and analyze it. And while I was analyzing it, my dog had done probably, you know, say it went after a squirrel, and he told me, correct it. So then I would say, okay, but last time my dog did this, you told me that I should do something different. Or the last dog that I had, you said, don't correct him, do something else. And, and in the meantime, the dog was, you know, still going for the squirrel, or maybe it stopped to sniff something while I was trying to figure out why he was telling me that. So poor PJ, but he gave me a really good dog training education. And I actually have a really thorough journal of the things that he told me. And I'm trying to figure out, I would love to publish that someday. It's just, there's a lot of things in it that I think a lot of people would rather that I did not put out in the world for everybody to read. Stuff that makes a good book is probably something that a lot of people would prefer that I not publish. So I'm not sure what to do about that. I think maybe I'll just write it and, you know, have it edited and save it until I'm either retired or, you know, leave the field someday. Not that I think I'm ever going to do that, but I guess someday it's possible that I would retire and then publish it then. I would love to publish a guide dog memoir, but it has a lot of other people whose feelings need to be considered. Sometimes people ask me, what will my next book be? Um, It will be that for sure, but I just don't know when it's going to happen. Or I would also love to write a book on just general puppy training. Hopefully that will happen someday. Judy, I see you have your hand up. Can you unmute yourself and ask your question? I just have to tell the world that you trained me in my first seeing eye dog, Terry. I did. I remember you guys. I remember Manhattan. I remember California. I remember. I definitely remember you and Terry. Especially the time when you came to my mobile home park and he, instead of taking me to my door, he took me to your rental car door. I was hilarious because I had my, I said, okay, we're not going to let Terry know I'm there. I'm just going to watch you work. And I had my window cracked. And apparently that was enough for my scent to get out. And the next thing I know, there's Terry and Judy standing at my car door. (laughs) Terry was very pleased. Yes, he was. Christy, I think the book was just terrific. And what I want to thank you for is empowering us handlers to now be able to ask intelligent questions. The schools may not like this so much, but I hope we will use these tools wisely. But 
I am so excited to feel that I have a way now to ask some questions, you know, that will help me understand better. Uh, and that is just so empowering to have these tools in our hands. And as I say, I thought the book was terrific. One thought, if you write that next book, get the editor to advise you before you actually write it. It'll be even better. That's actually a very good idea. The way I write is I just kind of throw everything out because I've always felt like um, when I make a good project, no matter what it is, I leave a lot on the floor, like on the cutting room floor is what I call it. Uh, So when I make a presentation or even like a, a PowerPoint, I usually make way more stuff than I need. And then I I'm not I, complaining about what you did. It was just terrific. I appreciate that. And I and I hope like it, I've always thought as a trainer I, or as an instructor, I want to be asked questions. I mean, I don't see that there's any harm in people asking me. If I tell you to do something, I've always said, I better have a reason why. And if somebody asks me, why are you telling me to do this? My answer better not be because that's just how we do it. And if it is, I say, you can you can feel free to ignore me. If that's the reason, you don't have to take my advice because that's a dumb reason. Like <laughs> there, there should be a reason why I'm telling you to do something. And um, sometimes people don't agree with it. And then we can have a discussion. And it's true that not everything is true for every dog. So even in the old days, if somebody had said, like, I really don't think I should leash correct my dog here and this is the reason, there are times when they might be right, for sure. Could we have your email address? Would you mind sharing that with us? Yeah, I'll just give you my personal one because I'm not technically here as a representative of my school. Um, they have somebody else giving the school update, not me. So I'm here just as an author. So my my email address is my name. It's Christy Bain, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E-B as in boy, A-N-E, and that's all just one word, at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Christy. You're welcome. It's great to hear from you. Who's your dog now, Judy? I have Kirsten from The Seeing Eye. No kidding. My third guide. Well, good for you. So, uh, number beginning with 808. Aloha. This is Deb from Hawaii. Thank you so much for doing this. My question to you is, and I've, I've had dogs before. I understand what you mean about the leash correction. I was taught to do that in a class and I wasn't thrilled about it. But what is your take about using shelter dogs or shelter puppies? I know there's been some talk about using them. I know that guide dogs has a strict standards for health. I get that. But have you had any experience with using shelter dogs? Thank you very much. That's a great question, actually. I don't have any problem with the idea of using shelter dogs. I know that schools tried it in the past, and the reason that it never became a thing is that their success rate was really low uh, because all the schools breed for a temperament that's really difficult to get because we need a dog that's really confident, but we also need a dog that's really interested in what the handler wants. So we need a dog that has the energy to do the job, but also you know, has an off switch. So when you don't need it, it will just lay down under the table and not be up in everybody's face trying to get attention. So what we need is really hard to get. It's hard to find, but it's more it's slightly more easy to find if we breed the parents that have those temperament characteristics. Still, we don't get it because breeding is I sometimes joke and say that I should write a book called Crapshoot about how to make a good guide dog because you can breed um, the very best parents and they, they can have a litter that is completely unsuccessful as guide dogs. And the opposite, you can breed parents that have some temperament concerns and the whole litter can graduate. My point is that I'd like the idea of using shelter dogs, but I know that it, when it was tried in the past, and this was the long ago past, because as long as I've been in this field, which if you count my puppy raising time, it's over 30 years, it's always been purpose-bred dogs that have been used. I think that individuals who train their own dogs or maybe people who have very small training programs I certainly don't have any problem with the idea of getting a dog from a shelter and training it to be a guide dog because you can find a good dog literally anywhere. And you can find it from a backyard breeder. You can find it from a show dog breeder. You can find it from a hunting dog kennel. Uh, it's just the chances are better if they are bred for the qualities that we need for a guide dog, if that makes sense. 
Um, so I'm not opposed. I just do think that they probably would be less successful in numbers, and that would bring the cost of each team up a lot higher. And um, that's the reason why the schools don't do it, as far as I know. And then there's the health, too, because we do breed for health. And I know that like at Southeastern, for example, we have almost completely gotten rid of hip dysplasia. I've only seen, I think, like four or five cases since I've been here, and all of them have been mild. So that's really impressive because, as you know, in the breeds that we use, they're prone to hip dysplasia. So they've pretty much bred those things out. Um, I wish that we could all be successful at breeding out um, skin and ear issues because that's kind of a different ball of wax. But uh, we're trying. We're doing everything we can. So that's the answer. And I, uh, I feel like I talked for a long time, and I hope that's a good enough answer. So we have number beginning with 617. I've had dogs. I got my first dog in 1967. Wow. So I've been, a, and I'm, I have my seventh dog. She's a lab. Her name is Debbie. And they're all from Seeing Eye. And I met you way, way back. You came to do some field work with another friend of mine, and then we took a walk together. So I do remember meeting you, and that was way back in the, and it was in the 90s. But anyway, it's great to hear from you. I guess my question is this. I've seen so many changes in, you know, the way the dogs are treated and the way they're recognized in the public. I remember when I got my first dog, I was turned away from restaurants and all kinds of stuff when I got my first dog, especially foreign restaurants and things. And it was it was quite something. I was in college. I was just out of high school when I got my first dog. Now I'm retired and my dog, Debbie, is retired. She's 14 and oh, she's wow. a love. Yep. She's just sleeping in playing with the kitty now, and I don't know whether I'll get another one or not. I keep saying I probably won't. She'll probably be my last dog because I'm retired and I don't work enough. I don't think it's fair not to be out and working a lot, but I can't imagine myself without a dog. But what would you say is the biggest change you've seen since the old days? The the I call them the good old days because we had wonderful dogs then. I think the biggest change for me was mostly shepherds when I got my first dog. And there was much more emphasis on, correct that dog, you know, and you had to correct the dog. And people just get so upset. I used to get yelled at and everything else. And I didn't even do it bad because I used to argue with the trainers and say, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I really think the biggest change is the uh, the use of food reward for sure, um, combined with the reduction in corrections. I wouldn't say elimination because we, as far as I know, all schools still use them. Like we don't use them in the puppy program at all, but they do use them in training. As far as I know, we, we definitely want to minimize them. And the biggest reason is the public reaction. So I know the change of food has not been universally popular, and I completely understand the reason. I, I really do, because I still, deep down, I do feel like there are times when I go, why don't we just correct them? Like, why not save yourself 50 or 100 repetitions of food and just do a leash correction, for goodness sake? Like, shut this behavior down right now. It will not be a problem anymore. Uh, I do not like using food. I think, A, it encourages them to look for food and sniff too much especially when you have labs, because labs, some dogs eat to live and labs live to eat, I think. I'm not a proponent of using food, never have been, because I'm very strict with anybody feeding my dogs anyway. And, you know, somebody says, oh, so you give your dog, you know, and it's hard to keep people from doing it anyway. So that's my opinion after having seven dogs. But um, what would you say is the biggest change going back to the real old days? I really do think it's the addition of food and the least corrections. I mean, I agree with you that there's not the, the number of shepherds. I love shepherds. I'm really Me sad too. that they're not used as much. I understand why they're not. And honestly, this is my personal opinion. One reason is that they are not as responsive to food training because uh, not that they aren't responsive, because I know somebody listening in this audience has a shepherd that loves food and is super food motivated, but but in the shepherd population in general, I feel like maybe they were better suited to the old method of training because I've had shepherds my entire life and I feel like their decline as guide dogs kind of coincided with the upswing and positive reinforcement. And I feel like part of the reason, maybe, again, if somebody has a shepherd that works great for food, like 
please understand, I'm not saying that that can't happen. I, I totally think it can happen. And there are lots of shepherds out there working now that we're trained with positive reinforcement and they're doing great. But I feel like a lot of shepherds kind of preferred it, the old training or did better with it because there's always different individual learners for whom different methods are more useful. Like my own shepherd, who is a pet, I did use food reinforcement with her, but I also used corrections because she's my pet and I can. And I feel like that was more easily understandable for her. Kind of like for me, I don't care if somebody was training me something and they say, no, you're doing it wrong. Do this. I don't care. That's perfectly okay to me. I say, oh, okay, I'm doing it wrong. Like I need to do it that way. And other people, if somebody says to them, you're doing it wrong, you need to do it the other way, they'll cry because they're more sensitive than I am or they feel like they're being, uh, you know, their teacher is being demeaning to them. So it makes sense to me that different dogs respond better to different methods. But I do think the biggest factor in that is the public reaction because the volume of complaints that all the schools get is pretty high. I'm actually temporarily working in alumni support in addition to puppy raising at Southeastern. And I do get a number of calls about people, quote unquote, mishandling their dogs. And in almost every case, when I investigated, it's nothing but like a standard leash correction given for a work error, which is how people have been taught to handle their dogs for decades. So the public sees it and they are so upset. They um, I had one recently where this driver of a car actually followed the person home and harassed them from her vehicle the whole time and then called the school. Oh, I believe it. People are crazy. Well, you didn't see that. When I first got a dog, people yeah. were very respectful. Well, yeah, and they looked at it as your dog, your business, but kind of like a child. Like, okay, I was spanked as a child. Not a lot, like, but when I was, was bad, I was, I was spanking and I didn't think anything of it because... I'm tough, so it didn't bother me. But imagine doing that now. Like, you can't do that now. Somebody Oh, forget it. And it's the same thing with the dogs. And they feel like they have the right to interfere with you, which just drives me around the bend. I guess I'm still very much old school. I love all the types of dogs. I've had labs, and I've had shepherds, and I had a Belgian Tavur, and I've had, she was wonderful. And so I've had different dogs, and all of them are from the seeing eye. I really do love the seeing eye. I just do not like the weather there. I can't do, I don't ever want to see snow again in my life. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm born and bred in New England, so I don't mind it. But anyway, I just wanted to say all the trainers, I respect all of the trainers and what you put into the dogs. And um, I think Debbie will probably be my last dog because I fell and broke my hip. So I don't think I'm going to go back for another one. I don't think it's fair if I can't work them the way, you know, I used to. But Debbie's 14 and she's a happy dog. So I just Perhaps wanted to say. Had a good long life with her. She's had a good long life with you. That's great. Oh, yes, yeah, she really has. She really has. But I just wanted to tell you that uh, I just respect and love all of the trainers and the work that you do. And I just wanted to say that. Oh, thank you very much. It was great talking to you. Good talking to you, too. Bye. Terry Nettles, you may unmute. Hi, Christy. It's Terry. Hey, Terry. I had, Terry I had you with Alpha. Alpha. Right? Yes, yes, I remember. I remember Alpha. I remember little Alpha. She was Alpha Marie. Alpha Marie. That's right. She was small. Yeah, she was a little tiny thing, and now I've I got this remember. big dog. But she was super, and you were such a, a super trainer. I really admire your techniques and everything, and I love your book. Oh, thank and you. I just wanted to say that I have mixed feelings about this food reward stuff because with my sixth guide, my current one, he's four years old now, we do these food reward and it works great for me. It's great when you are teaching a dog to find something or, yes, correct. you know, and to do something new. I think it's great. But however, my dog is so highly food, wanting food that he is constantly like almost tripping over his own feet and curling in front of me to look for a treat every time. Right. If I don't food reward him, then he is, well, okay, he works great in harness. His curb approaches are just so perfect. And, you know, he finds stuff when you've taught it to him because of the food reward. But he is very highly distracted with other dogs and he's extremely strong. I think it was not a very good match. 
So I've had to call the school many, many times to come down and work with me with him. He's been a challenge, and I don't think I'm ever going to get another one because of it. I'm sorry. Anyway. You're yeah. such a handler. You're an amazing handler. You- I know. And that's the thing. I think they give me the troublemakers or whatever. And they know I can handle it. But the thing is, is he's been so strong that what happens is, and they've told me, you know, give him a treat to try to, you know, distract him from the dog. If it's a little tiny dog, it's not so bad. But when it's a, a dog that's larger. And so I try that and, and still even though he's very highly motivated with food, still a dog distraction is still far greater than the food in a lot of instances, especially like if I take him out to park. Yeah. Oh yeah. That he's not on his harness. And then the, and then the dog and I'm like, and you remember how strong I am. Yeah. You're, you're pretty tough. Yes. And I can give a good correction. I can lift dogs off their feet, but Excuse, excuse me. This is Andrea. Can everyone hear me? Yep. Yeah. I'm That's so Andrew, we got you. I'm so sorry to interrupt. And I, I love all these conversations, but we've got only 15 minutes left and okay. I want people to get to their chances. <laughs> and I, so my, my recommendation. I will be emailing you, Christy. Okay. But anyway, thank you. Your book is great. Thank you. And for- I will email you. Thank you. I will say that I do feel really strongly that using food for curbs and targeting is, I mean, I don't know any trainer who would not want to do that because it, it really did clean up all of those things beautifully. Actually, country work as well, or off-road work, whatever you call it. Um, I, people struggle, no matter where they are, they tend to struggle with using food for controlling distractions. And that's all I'm going to say about that because I want to talk to as many people as I can. So being a moderator, I'm just going to ask that since we have asked a few questions that have refer, related to food reward, if people have questions on that topic, could they hold off and let people talk about a different topic since there's so many fabulous things covered in the book? Thank you. So next is number ending in 878. Are you there? Okay, I'm going to go on to the next one and we're going to figure this out. Beth? Christine, your book is so fabulously awesome. Thank you so much for writing it and thank you for being here. This is great. My question concerns. Very briefly, what do you know about canine training? I've read some uh, detective stories. They were fictional, but I could tell the authors did a lot of research. From a casual observer's point of view, it seemed to me that in general, canines seem to be more instinctively attuned to do their work. It just seems like they, they just fit into it from the beginning with so much more alacrity than guide dogs. And, and of course, I'm generalizing here, but what do you know about canines? Thank you so much. You're welcome. Do you mean canines like detection dogs for... Yeah, uh, yeah like, like yeah. search and rescue. I don't know that much. I do know that we work with a program that takes some of our transferred dogs and, and uses them for that type of stuff. And I think that that program is a little bit more simple in terms of matching the dog's innate qualities with the work that's needed to be done. What they're looking for is high drive and persistence. And when they identify a dog with those qualities, then it's pretty straightforward. Like, okay, the dog has this quality. We're going to show you what we want you to find. And when you find it, you're going to get this. Now go. It's easier to match up the drive with the task than it is for guide dogs because being a guide dog is not black and white. It's very gray and there's a lot of abstraction in it. Um, The dog has to take cues from the environment as opposed to just from the handler. Uh, The dog sometimes has cues from the handler that conflict with what it has been trained to do because of something in the environment the handler doesn't know about. That's a long way of saying intelligent disobedience. So uh, I think guide dog work is just a little, it's more stressful because the answer is not always black and white. And a lot of dogs find that kind of decision-making to be really difficult. That's my air traffic controller analogy. No matter how much you paid me, I would not be a good air traffic controller because I just couldn't take the stress. Like you could pay me a million dollars and I couldn't do it because it's just too stressful. And I think that's what it is with guide dogs too, because the combination of qualities, you need to be a good guide. You need confidence, but not so much confidence that you're just going to try to get whatever you want because you also need biddability, the desire to do what your handler wants you to do. But you can't be so biddable or so willing that you can't exercise disobedience when you need to. You have to have the energy to pull in harness, but you have to be willing to turn it off to lay under the desk. So the combination of traits needed for a guide dog is really tricky to find in one dog. Whereas with a canine, 
they're basically just looking for drive and persistence. And so if the dog has that, it's probably going to be a good canine. Hopefully that answered the question. Very hearty and happy congratulations to Christy on completing this absolutely wonderful and so much needed book. This is Alice Massa from Wisconsin with Leader Dog Willow. Oh, I'm so glad to talk to you. How are you? uh, We are fine, thanks to you in many, many ways. And I just say that I could not wait for the Bard book. So last late spring or early summer, when I first found out about your book, I had it as a Kindle book and read it on my smart speaker. And I just was enthralled by the depth and breadth and thoroughness of your book. It is a marvelous book. When I first applied to Leader Dog School back in 1989, I tried to read any kind of book somewhat related that I could get my hands on. And now, 30, 31 years later, here we are with this book that will mean so much to people who are applying for a first guide dog or have a relative who is or people in the profession. It can reach out to so many people the way you have written it. I've given it as gifts many times already, and I know I will in the future. Everybody loves the book that I've given it to as gifts, and I'm just so excited for you about your book. I knew you would complete your goal, and of course you did in such beautiful fashion. Alice Alice is an author, too, so this means a lot to me. Thank you, Alice. I appreciate it. And now I have to say something personal. This wonderful, enthusiastic lady handed to me my fourth later dog, who's here right beside me now. And we are just so privileged to have had you as our trainer, and you mean the world to me, and Willow and I thank you every day. Oh, that's great. Well, give her a big kiss for me. She is a sweetie, and so are you. It was great to hear from you. Thank you. Lolly? Lolly? Thank you. Uh, Jaws pronounces it lowly, but it is lolly. Hi, Christy. Hi, lolly. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Um, I first just want to say thanks for writing the book. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I will. Um, And I'm glad to hear that it's on Bard as well. My question has to do with your broad experience, both as a puppy raiser, as someone who's now working with the puppy raisers, and as an instructor for several different schools. You probably did include this in the book, but can you speak to the variety of experience, the differences that you found between schools, generally speaking, and sort of the differences and how you've experienced those over the years? I think sort of a general question about that. Yeah, that's okay. I, I have a general answer that I can give you. The first thing I'll say is I love all of them, and I'm on good terms with all of the schools I've been at. And really, um, the reason that I'm in, I'm at Southeastern is literally, I do love Southeastern, but also because I just can't do winter. Like I can't. And all the other places I worked have winter. And even though I love them all, I just, no more snow for me. That's it. The second thing I want to say is that all the ways work because when I go from one school to another, often I'll see a lot of different ways that schools reach the same goal. Like the training plans that they follow are different or the philosophies are different. And then they just have things that are part of their culture. Like um, pretty much every trainer at Southeastern has a drool rag on their treat bag and like other schools don't. And I don't know the reason it's just, you know, nobody is without one here and nobody has one at other places or like at seeing eye, everybody had a Gore-Tex rain hat and they just don't do that somewhere else. And I don't know the reason, but one thing I've learned is that all the schools work in terms of putting mostly graduating dogs and handlers that are successful, no matter what their methods are. And most of them are pretty open-minded as far as discussing the training that happens at other organizations. And you have a pretty good chance, no matter where you go, of getting a good dog from any school. So what I always tell people is if training method is important to you, especially with regard to using food or not, That's something you need to find out before you go to the school, because if you hate food and you go to a school that uses food, you're probably not going to have a great experience 
not only because you will be expected to use food in class because that's how the dog was trained and the dog is not going to work as well if you don't, but also because when you go home, if you don't want to use food and the dog, if the dog's expecting it, then the dog's work probably isn't going to be as good. And there are still schools that don't use a lot of, well, I can't really speak to seeing eye. As far as I know, they are still teaching clicker training, right, for people that want it, but it's not, I don't believe it's mandatory um, in their program. But somebody can certainly correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't been there in a long time. So I think it's great, actually, that there's a variety of schools available because that means that people can find the one that suits them best and whose methods suit them best. I hope that sort of answered your question, Lolly. Number 586. Hi, Christy. It's Laura Liggett from Michigan and Lead a Dog Firefly. Hi. Hi. How are you? And I am so excited to talk to you today. And I had a stroke last summer. Sorry to hear that. And uh, I can't use my left arm and hand at all. I'm taking physical therapy again. But Firefly, of course, can't. She wants to go to my right side. And Sue came out to see me. And um, she determined that she would be too confused. She's nine now. Yeah, yeah, it's a little old. So I feel it's best. Uh, she can go to places who love her and know her and are familiar with her. Mm-hmm. They have said that's fine. Praise God. Okay. How is my old farmer? Who, Will? Yes. Oh, he's fine. He's actually doing a home placement in New York right now, so he's missing out on wow. this. Wow, too bad he's missing this. He was my mobility instructor at Leader, and I, I believe he was... He was somewhat instrumental, I think, in my getting Firefly. Yep. And being qualifying for her. Well, I'll so, tell him um, to sit high when he comes home. Yeah, thanks. And we're doing very well, and Firefly gets to go to my vascular surgeon. He loves Firefly. He says it's a requirement that she come down to Fort Hospital and see him. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad that you have had a good, long working life with her. She's a good girl. I remember her very yeah, well. Yeah, except that we had some issues with pooping where she shouldn't. Well, I guess everybody, every team has some issues. I Well, almost every We team. had a couple issues with that. And my other dog, Coco, we had, she had to pass because she had liver failure. Uh, in 2014. Dogs, they just, they do not live long. It was just before that. No, it was 2018. I'm sorry. And I adopted a younger dog for, I adopted, uh, Jack now. He's all black except he's got one dot in the middle of his belly and one dot at the tip of his tail. And that's her little brother now. Sounds like a great friend for Firefly. Well, Laura, it was great talking to you. I think we're probably going to go on to the next person just because we're either out of time or almost out of time. And I want to talk to as many people as I can. So great talking to you and Firefly. Okay, so we have, and I, I don't, uh, Pammy? Hi, does it say Pammy? Hi, Christy. I met you one time in an airport. Oh. When I was, I was coming home with a dog. I huh? think it was my second dog, but, but you were in the airport on your way somewhere else, and, and we, we talked about seeing eye dogs. I was going to tell seeing eye that I would take a breeder dog because the you know the waiting time is so long oh, now yeah, because yeah. they I've never known anybody that worked with a breeder dog. I know they have to be good dogs. Oh yeah, I've known people we, who worked with breed like retired breeder dogs that have had a couple yeah. of Oh, I have um I've known quite a few and they've all been successful. I would say go for it. Do you think maybe I could get in quicker? Because a lot of people wouldn't do it. Like, well, they don't want to do it. No, I mean, that's a question for the school. It, it, probably there are some people that wouldn't want a dog that was a little older. So maybe, but I really can't say because I don't know what the school's waiting list is or anything like that. So. Well, it's really horrible. They told me it might be a year. So that's why I thought this idea might. Uh, I'm going to just try I it. I encourage see. you to let them know because it can't hurt. I will say that. No. And then I wanted to ask you another thing about the. I don't want to call them Walmart harnesses, but but I will. Um, the ones that the Palo Alto harnesses that they're made out of plastic, and they break real easy. I just wondered why did they switch to those plastic harnesses? The handle, especially. I have no idea because I'm not quite sure what harness you're talking about. Um, oh my word! You should, I wish you would <laughs> really just look like it came from the dollar store. I do not know the answer to that. 
I know Southeastern still uses, we still use the leather harnesses we always have. And I've seen guide dogs for the blind harnesses, which I know are made of a different material, but they are not flimsy at all. They're really durable. So I don't know. Well, when I saw the harness that I saw, the dog was under the table and I, I heard this little kind of a snap sound mm-hmm. and I reached down to see if my dog might be chewing on something it shouldn't. And I found the handle of that harness, it had just come apart, you know, it's molded where it has a line down the middle and it just came in half. And I I said to the girl that was sitting by me, I said, does your harness handle come apart a lot? And she goes, oh, no, not not again. So harness that is or why any school or individual would use a harness that breaks that easily because they got to be durable. Well, they said they they were doing the Australia method and they used that kind of harnesses. I just wondered if you knew anything about those because I thought, oh, no, but based on your description, I really wouldn't want to use one. Well, the girl was trying to buy my harness for $150. Wow, there's better ones online for less than that. Nelson Leather, not that I'm trying to sell for them, but I've seen one of their harnesses super nice. H-I-L-A. Well, anything would be better than, than the plastic thing. I really thought it was a joke at first, and I hate to say that because it wasn't, but the girl said when she, when, she, when she got the dog in the harness, she, she said she was so horrified because the last time she got a dog there, they had leather harnesses and they were just, you know, fine. And these were just, I don't know. Be on the lookout for one. If you see a dollar store harness, then you could write another book. Thank you so much. Thank you. Frank Sr. Christy, tremendous book, man. I've been a guide dog user since uh, 69. I was the first 16-year-old to get a dog in uh, New York. I've had all shepherds. And then three and a half years ago, I had to put mine down. And I said, you know what? I'm done. But then I read your book, and I said, man, you put me right back into oh. the mood. And I went back and got a uh, Freedom Guide Dog Labrador for the first time. 50-pound lab. Well, the ride on a dog is tremendous, man. When you get that bond and you feel that ride, it's, 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 there's nothing like it. It's the best thing in the world to see. And I, it has lost none of its appeal to me. Like I, I feel like I just get more interested in it over time. And yeah. Well, your well, your book turned me back on, and the thing I was wondering is about the roughware harness because mm-hmm. I just ordered it. Are oh. you familiar with that at all? No, the, the uh, handle that can adjust to three different. So more of a running. Uh, I think more people use it for running as well. Is that the one Guiding Eyes uses? I know that they have. Their I running. think Guiding Eyes. I'm not it sure is, if Guiding Eyes, not, but Fidelco sure. Fidelco uses it. So I know. Anyway, I just thought it in anyway, just to see the difference and and all of this. Ruffware is a really good company. So, um, I mean, I don't know that they know anything about guide dogs specifically, but the quality of the product should be good, whether it's good for working your dog and you'll have, you'll just have to find that out yourself, I guess. Right. Well, keep up. And it's nice to put the voice behind this great author. So thank thank you very much. Lynn, this is Andrea. We're coming close. I don't want to cut people off, so we need to get maybe one quick question, and then I've got to make a couple of final announcements. Before. All right. Marilee, if your question is brief. Marilee Hill Kennedy. Yes, and I really don't have a question, so I'll be really quick. I just wanted to say you are a fantastic instructor. I had you you in 2004 at CNI. Yep, I do. I remember. remember (laughs) And one of the very wonderful things I remember was that you loved my chocolate-covered coffee beans, and you would open my door and stick your hand in and (laughs) grab a handful because you were very, very into caffeine and coffee. Absolutely. If we have this, if this is in person next year, please bring some with you, and I'll be happy to accept them. (laughs) Anyway, you are one of my favorite instructors. Thank you. It's great to hear from you. Yeah, everything's good. I have dog number four. Anyway, I read your book. Thank you for writing it. It's very inspiring. That's great to hear. It's so good to hear from you. Oh, thanks. You too. Hello, everyone. It's Andrea. And unfortunately, this session has to end. I guess I should have... um made it for two and i apologize christy if i oh, that, that's okay. thinking i would have done that 
I'll try I'm to going. come next year in person. How about that? Yeah, that would be, fa- yeah, that would be fabulous. In this session, we can finish in the bar afterwards. How about there that? you go. Thank you so much for being here. It is such an interesting book and you come to it with such an interesting perspective because you've seen so many parts of what happens before these dogs end up with us. So that's really interesting yeah, and wonderful. Yeah. Um, I do have three names to call for door prizes. And I do just want to remind everyone really quickly that our next session is on Wednesday, the 21st. However, you can certainly feel part of the convention by buying a harness pouch or 10. Certainly let's work on those drawing tickets for those plush guide dogs. We, they definitely need to find a home. And we are hoping that it can be with who, whichever one of you is the one that's currently going to have the winning ticket by buying it. I want to thank everyone from ACB who's made this happen. And certainly to our Lynn, what is your title today? I am a host. A host. Okay. They've changed all the names and it makes me very confused. So I do have three names and those names for winners of door prizes for this session are Kimberly Morrow, Deborah Versteeg, sorry, it's V-E-R and then S-T-E-E-G, and George Ashet, A-S-H-I-O-T-E-T-I-S. So for everyone who's registered for GDUI and become entered, thank you. And for those of you who haven't, please do be safe. Enjoy everything that's happening with ACB. And don't forget to come back to GDUI on the 21st. And thanks for making this first day of convention so fabulous. Did you give your codes, Andrea? You know, I'm really, I'm really in trouble and I should be fired instantly. I couldn't find my email this morning. And I didn't give my codes and I'm, I'm horrible and I'm, there's no excuse because Lynn, do you have the codes? Yes, I'm on it. Since we screwed up, we'll give both codes. All right. The beginning code is eight zero three, three, one. And the ending code is six, nine, zero, two, five. Thank you so much. That's very helpful. All right. And we'll let them know that both codes were given at the end.